And this Easter Sunday morning, we're going to continue our break from uh, Matthew's Gospel and uh, turn to a letter from Paul to the Christians at Corinth. And uh, that is 1 Corinthians 15 in particular. It's found in your pew Bibles. That's helpful at 961. 1 Corinthians 15. This is Paul's classic exposition of the resurrection of Christ, ours as well, of course, with him. By way of background, there were apparently those in Paul's day, as there are in ours, who denied the resurrection of the dead, including Jesus' resurrection. So the passage we're going to read this morning is as relevant today as it was 2,000 years ago. Things have not changed. Doubt about and downright unbelief concerning the resurrection continue, even in the church. And Scripture's answer to that remains exactly the same as ever. Let's pray. Father, we ask for your blessing upon your word now. Once more, we ask with confidence, knowing that the same Holy Spirit who inspired these words carried Paul along as he penned them, is also just as really and truly present here in our midst and in our hearts to illumine this word so that it will find its place in our hearts and shape our thinking and therefore our lives. For that powerful work we humbly ask now in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Corinthians 15, 58 verses, beginning with verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are now being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James. Then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me, also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised 
Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. And you're still in your sins. And those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom of God, like the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? We better hit the brakes for just a second now and pause over that for just a moment. That verse invariably raises questions. Evidently, some people in Corinth were being baptized on behalf of those who were dead, on behalf of others who had already died. This is the only place in the Bible in which we read of such a thing. There have been many attempts to explain this, uh, but none of them seems entirely convincing. What's important for us to note, and also briefly here, is that Paul is not proposing the practice of being baptized for the dead. He's not even endorsing it. He is rather simply raising it as another example of the inconsistencies of those who deny the reality of the resurrection, yet hold baptism services on behalf of those who have, dead, or who have died. I mean, what sense does that make? That's the point. That's the argument. If the dead are not raised, then you're just wasting your time. Verse 13. Why am I in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us drink uh, for eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. 
not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. Uh, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly one is of one kind, the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we've borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then it shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death. Where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, 
immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Well, praise God for Easter. If for no other reason than that it causes us to pause each year and to consider this earth-transforming, cosmos-transforming truth, this cosmic event that changes everything, absolutely everything, and not just for us, not just for Christians, but for the whole world, for all creation. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. If that this is true, and we believe for many, many reasons it certainly is, many of them just now presented to us, in fact, by the Apostle Paul in his Spirit-inspired argument in 1 Corinthians 15, I say if this is true, it means everything for us. It is, as the saying goes, this is the game-changer. But how is it so? I mean, what does the resurrection really do for you? For me? And we understand, don't we? We all mean what we understand when we say Jesus died for our salvation. We can relate because the Bible itself is saying it so often. So often it refers to the fact that we are saved by Christ's death on the cross. There Jesus paid the penalty for our sins. There Jesus defeated his enemies and ours. On the cross he suffered in our place the punishment, that wrath that was due to us for our sins. There on the cross he made atonement for us and on and on. That's the Bible's point over and over and over again, isn't it? And because that's the Bible's emphasis, it's our emphasis too as Christians. The emphasis of Christian writers that you've read. Book after book after book has been authored and continues to be so today about the cross, about the role of Christ's death and accomplishing our salvation. Books about the gospel, the good news of salvation, speak often of his death. Preachers preach so often. Jesus died for our sins. You and I tell unbelievers, don't we, about how Jesus died to save us. By the power of the Holy Spirit, we get it. But what about his resurrection? Have you ever told anyone the good news about how Jesus rose to save you? Have you ever seen any books entitled Salvation by the Empty Tomb? We've grown accustomed to hearing things like this. If sin is the bill, the cross is the payment, the resurrection is the receipt. And in a sense, it's true. It's wonderfully true, isn't it? The resurrection is the receipt. In fact, it's many things, even here in 1 Corinthians 15. I mean, the resurrection is for one. It is evidence. It's proof of certain things, isn't it? It's proof of the existence of the world and life to come. Paul argues in verse 23, Christ's resurrection is the first fruits, he says. Where there are first fruits gathered at harvest time, there are the promise of more fruits to come. So Christ's return, uh, resurrection rather, is the promise of our own resurrection from the dead someday. Unless he comes, of course, before we die. His resurrection is the demonstration that there is coming a day when all his enemies will finally be put under his feet. Paul goes on to argue. And in his resurrection from the dead, we see the pattern of our own resurrection as well. 
Jesus, of course, made the same point at the tomb of Lazarus. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. The, the apostles, they, they proclaim the resurrection because it's the, the demonstration that, that Jesus is all that he claimed to be. We saw that together in another of Paul's epistles some years ago together, didn't we? Studying Romans in this house of the Lord where Jesus, where Paul says that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. And second, of course, it's a demonstration of eternity, of the eternal nature of our lives that puts into perspective our short years, however difficult and affliction-ridden they may be. That's Paul's point in verse 32. If the dead are not raised, then let us eat and drink. <laughs> For tomorrow we die. But the dead are raised, Paul goes on to argue. So therefore, verse 58, our our in the Lord our labor is not in vain. Third, the resurrection is, of course, the embodiment of the gospel message itself. The promise of life after death, of, of, of renewed and perfected life in the world to come for all those who believe in Jesus. So it is with the resurrection of the dead, Paul says, verse 42. What is sown perishable, what is raised imperishable. It's, it's sown in dishonor, it's raised in glory, it's sown in weakness, it's raised in power. Another apostle, Peter, remember, seems to make that same point in his first letter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. Yes, dear flock, the resurrection is all those things to us, isn't it? It's all of those things. It is the receipt. It is the evidence. It is the demonstration of eternity. It is the promise of things to come. But that's not all that the resurrection is. You may have noticed the title to the sermon this morning, Saved by His Resurrection. I want you to understand that I mean that. That's not just hyperbole. It's not an overstatement just to kind of grab your attention. Let me say it plainly. We are saved as much by the empty tomb as we are by the cross. And let me put it another way to make the point even more clearly. We were not, we could not be saved by the cross alone. That is to say, by Christ's death alone. We are saved by his resurrection, too. It must be both. Now, you object. If it's so, why doesn't the Bible just come out and say it? But it does. Remember Paul's remarkable assertion in Romans 4.25? Jesus was raised for our what? justification. 
He was raised for our justification. It's a remarkable thing for him to say and remarkable to our ears because it's not often said in the Bible and even where it's said, it's not really developed. It's not really explained. That's not the only time that the point of salvation by the empty tomb is made in Scripture. In fact, Paul will say it again at the very end of the next chapter in Romans, in chapter 5, after saying what we're well familiar with hearing, that we are reconciled to God through the death of the Son. He goes on to say that we are saved through Christ's life. A reference, no doubt, to His resurrection life. Peter goes and does the same thing at the very tail end of a very difficult argument in 1 Peter 3. Some of you may remember and scratching your heads over this one, even maybe just recently, about preaching to the spirits in prison who disobeyed in the days of Noah. He begins with the message familiar to our ears that Christ suffered and died for our sins. Yes, yes, yes. The righteous for the unrighteous. Yes, Peter, we understand. But then without explanation. He finishes by saying this, that we are saved through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. John Calvin explains this relationship between Christ's death and resurrection for our salvation. Why salvation through Christ's resurrection is not made more often and explicitly in the Bible by asserting that the death and resurrection of Jesus are in fact considered to be part and parcel with each other. They, are, they belong together. They're inseparable events. In other words, when one is mentioned, the other is always implied. And the resurrection assumes the cross, and the cross assumes the resurrection. Christ's death is what it is only because it is followed by the resurrection. And His resurrection loses its special meaning, of course, if it's separated from the suffering and death of Jesus for our sin on the cross. Calvin puts it this way, he says, How could he by dying have freed us from death if he had himself succumbed to death? How could he have acquired victory for us if he had failed in the struggle? Therefore we divide the substance of our salvation between Christ's death and resurrection as follows. Through his death, sin was wiped out and death extinguished through his resurrection righteousness uh, was restored and life was raised up so that thanks to his resurrection his death manifested its power and efficacy that is its working power in us all true of course but I think we can go even further without separating his death from his resurrection now, because they are, of course, inextricably bound together with one another. I say it again, we're saved because of his resurrection. We are justified by his resurrection. This is how it's so. It is the underlying foundation on which Paul's arguments here in 1 Corinthians 15 are built. And it is this. That Christ's resurrection and your resurrection constitute one single reality. 
Here in his letter to the Corinthians, Paul argues that Christ's, from Christ's resurrection, that is, from Christ's resurrection to our resurrection, and then from ours to Christ's, the two are bound tightly together, aren't they? When Christ rose from the dead, you rose from the dead. Spiritually speaking and someday physically speaking. Theologians explain this connection with Christ and his resurrection under the umbrella of union with Christ. That doctrine is so important. It's right at the heart of your salvation, your union with Christ. When Christ died, some 2,000 years ago, you died. You died when Christ died in union with him. Your guilt was buried with him. But your salvation didn't stop there, does it? It's, it's not much of a salvation, is it, to be a guiltless corpse? On the third day when he rose, you rose. You rose with him, united with him, even as you're united with him now. His triumph over sin and death is your triumph over sin and death. His history is your history. His victory is your victory. That's how we're saved, not only by the cross, but by the empty tomb. Not only by his death, but by his victorious resurrection from the dead in union with him. In his other letters, Paul makes the point explicitly. To the Ephesians, he writes, God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him. In the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Will you try to wrap your mind around the fact that in union with Christ right now you are seated in the heavenly places at the right hand of the throne? You're there because you are that tightly in union with Christ. He asked in his letter to the Romans, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ have been baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. He goes on, If we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. To the Colossians, he puts it this way, we have been raised with Christ. So close, so complete is this union that you and I have with Christ. Paul can write to the Galatians, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in
resurrected Christ. He lives in you. He lives in me and all who believe and trust in him. That's how we're saved, by the resurrection. Eternal life, the resurrection of life, the resurrection of Christ pulses and courses through our souls and through our bodies. What more wonderful news could you ever hear than that? And what more wonderful news ever to proclaim than that? Soar we now, soar we now, where Christ has led, following our exalted head, made like him, like him we rise. Ours the cross, the grave, the sky.